Hey everybody, welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh, heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman. I'm one of your hosts. I am a personal development and transformational life coach with a background in political science and political game theory. All of those things tend to shape my view of the world and the lens through which I see it. As such, I am a huge fan of personal development as well as personal responsibility. I'm also here with Angie Backus, our other host, Angie. I am Angie Backus. I'm a psychotherapist in the city of Philadelphia. I've been practicing um, psychotherapy for about 30 or 13, sorry, 13 years. Um, before that, I was a social worker. I think what I bring to the table is a little bit different, um, whereas Rafael is more of on the political end in a kind of a macro mindset. I think I go more towards the micro mindset. Uh, as a psychotherapist, I'm listening very for very detailed stories of individuals. So I think that's what I bring to the table. To start, I'd like to say a little bit about the point of the show, We are in an interesting place in the United States. We're at an interesting place in time. We're certainly very divided. I think we're the most divided that we've been since the Civil War. And the question is, how do we get back to something that looks familiar? I think no matter where or how you grew up in the United States, no matter how much privilege or disenfranchisement you faced. Obviously, people have very different backgrounds and very different experiences uh, of being here and growing up here. But no matter how you grew up in the United States, I think we can all agree that where we are, this climate now looks unrecognizable. It's like a bizarro country. And I think people don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to approach it. And it feels really alienating. I think it feels really strange. So in part, uh, one of the things that we want to do in this show is facilitate a conversation or facilitate many conversations uh, and figure out how to talk and how to listen to each other, how to be heard by each other so that we can take the steps to start moving closer and get some semblance of normalcy back in this country. I've been listening to you for um, quite a few years. We've known each other a while. Um, I'm always really interested in your viewpoint, how you think. Um, I think it is, um, for lack of a better word, I think it's pretty profound and pretty nuanced. Um, that's I'm always struck by that when I talk to you. Um, the things that I might consider to be more of a, a, a black and white nature, uh, you know, one way or the other, I think you usually find and you steer me towards some kind of nuance that I've missed out. Um, I know um, a lot of your background story. I'm, I'm happy to be in the position of asking questions, um, and certainly I will offer my, um, my thoughts and comments as you talk. But I think it might be useful to start out by just kind of talking a little bit about your own background, where you come from, and what has led you to even be interested in what you're talking about today. 
Yeah, so I think you nailed it, right? This idea of nuance, which is certainly an, an important way of how I see the world and how I try to uh, navigate the world. And I think a lot of that comes out of really being forced into so many different realities over the course of my life and really kind of not forced to take perspective in the same way, but perspective became uh, and, and understanding nuance became really one of my most valuable tools as I tried to integrate some some realities that were really kind of dissonant. Uh, what kind of right? What could you describe some of the realities? Yeah. Talk about them. So, you know, early on in my childhood, I think we were three. Uh, we weren't three. I was three when my family moved into public housing in Philadelphia. And certainly my my experience living in in the housing projects was, I mean, it kind of matched the, the kind of common narrative of what it meant to be in the 1980s and in the quote unquote inner city and living in the housing projects. Um, I think for a lot of people that image conjures up violence and that that matches my my narrative completely um and and to uh, not just uh not just the the realness of it but also how early it started uh, i remember the first person that i watched die how old were you so i'm not a hundred percent sure uh but i know i hadn't turned 10 yet mm. so i i couldn't have been i couldn't have been older than 10 um, but possibly under 10, 9? Yeah, it could have been before 10, mm-hmm. somewhere between 7 and 10. Um, and I remember, um, you know, Angelo, who was, uh, he was the uncle of a good friend. He was about my, he was about my brother's age, so he could not have been more than 20. Um, and he was on the street right next to us. He'd been shot. Earlier that day, I, I didn't see the shooting happen, uh, but I did get to see the life flow out of him. Can you just describe, like, how does a seven to ten year old get to the place of watching somebody on the street? How did the events transpire that a little kid was witness? So, I mean, this is part of this is part of that life. It's summertime. The kids are playing out in the street. As I, I mean, what else would kids be doing? Uh, but we were, we're all outside playing. I think there, there's a hail of gunshots. Um, then there's some commotion, and I think more, more than the gunshots, which are kind of easily ignorable, it's the commotion that starts, and then you know everyone comes around the corner, um, and Angelo is lying there in the street in the summer, uh, waiting for a 911 response. I see. And no, so a- no became, ambulance ever comes. And it became an event. It Not, it, not, a, it was, it, not a dramatic... It became an, a, an event for the entire neighborhood. Okay. Certainly. Um, his family being right there, I think everyone else being respectful enough to keep some, some distance. Um, and I think people waiting with a little bit of, of, of a hope there was certainly a sense of hope that if the ambulance could come quickly enough, um, that he might just make it. He might survive. Um, but, you know, a- after about a half hour of this man's body uh, lying there, um, then the, the crowd itself was was verbally asking, like, you know, what what's going on? It's been 30 minutes. Why is there no ambulance? Uh, 
And no ambulance ever came. Eventually, there was a police wagon that came and um, took his lifeless body and put it in the back of the van. And you watched this? Yep. And and hauled it away. Um, and, you know, that, that that's certainly not the last time that that I had to to kind of, you know, take in that type of that type of violence or that that type of event that that um but then um and so that 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 the violence is real, right? Mm-hmm. And it left a real mark certainly on me. I think it it's you can't not you can't witness something like that and have sure. it not impact you. Yep. So by the time I, I got to high school, I found myself really in a, a completely different environment. Uh, really a different milieu altogether. I went to um, college preparatory school, which was certainly filled with kids that were very different than the majority of my neighborhood. Uh, but it was also really representative of a city like Philadelphia. There were kids from all over the world. Uh, literally, I mean, just about every country in the world was represented, and I ended up with friends from everywhere. I took a foreign language. Uh, I had flan for the first time. Let me tell you, once you have a really good flan... Was it a good one? Once you have a really good flan... And was it a good one? It, it was amazing. Uh, I've had both a good flan and uh-huh. a cocoa flan, coconut flan, and that in and of itself is going to expand your world. I got you. Uh, so certainly being in high school, but then having to juxtapose my high school reality to my home reality, that required some some expansion of, of my perspective. And I think nuance helped me navigate that. Mm. But I think the biggest, the, the biggest kind of shock to the system was when I when I went to uh, undergrad. I was at Bucknell. Bucknell's a super white school, and when I say super white, I mean so the student body is about ninety seven percent white. Mm. Right? Um, and Bucknell is where? Bucknell is smack dab in the middle of the state of Pennsylvania. Smack dab in the middle. So if you were to put a crosshairs on Pennsylvania. Uh, Lewisburg would be right there in the middle of that crosshair. Mm. You cannot get more central than um, than Lewisburg, PA. But, so Bucknell had a couple things going on. Not only was it 1% black. Uh, and 1%? 1% black. 3% Whoa. minority. Okay. Um, uh, in total, uh, 97% white. So not only w- w- the kind of racial demographic really skewed in a way that was I mean, it was almost dysphoric, right? I almost didn't know how to how to integrate and how to deal yeah. with with that kind of environment. Uh, but also, like the 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 median income, um, the median income was also fairly high. Certainly higher than anything that I, I could really come to, to grips with and feel comfortable. Can right? I ask? Did you know all the all of these statistics before you? No, entered? you know, I went to I went to Bucknell. <laughs> I had a friend who was a rower. Okay. At Temple. And I was like, I want to be a rower. And Bucknell had a good enough uh, ah. academic thing. They had a really good crew, rowing crew. So I was like, I'm doing that. So you went to row. I went to row. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I made the team, too. Right? I was, But that's another story for All another right. day. It, it was hard to integrate that level of, that kind of level of just like opulence and wealth. Uh, there was at least one time when it was like perspective weekend, and I remember, I remember there was a girl who was a you know a perspective student. She was being driven around in the back of a, a Rolls Royce. She had hmm. these long white 
uh, kind of elbow length gloves, <laughs> like a like a Southern Bell type hat, and it I mean it was crazy to me. I I was like, what is what's happening here? There was at least one time where, you know, some students got in trouble and a parent landed a helicopter on the soccer field. I mean, it was that kind of money. How did it make you feel to watch all of this opulence before you? It was nearly, you know, I'm taking the bus there. I'm taking the bus back. Long distance was still a thing, so I can barely call home, which, which you know, was fun in its own way. Uh, but it was hard to integrate. Sure. It was nearly impossible to integrate. Um and there was enough kind of emotional and cognitive dissonance that I was almost, I almost had to be two different selves. Mm. Over time, certainly by the time I had left Bucknell, it hadn't been done. But over time, I was able to integrate those experiences. And I think the integration of those experiences juxtaposed with the way that I grew up, juxtaposed with that level of really like the kind of violence and poverty and marginalization uh, juxtaposed with the, the, the opulence and the wealth and the privilege to integrate that took time but once it did then I had constructed a, a mosaic of the United States and really how a mosaic of the world that was different enough than most of the people who had come from that kind of privilege were able to do and certainly different enough from most of the people who had come from where I had come from were able to do. It was the integration of these two worlds in high school as well that perspective started to really matter. And out of that, I started to, the nuance started to matter as well because I could see that people were doing different things in different places. So you your integration came with the acceptance that there are these ways of seeing things on these vastly different spectrums. Right. And instead of seeing one thing all one way, you started to integrate that there certainly are these, you know, um, pockets of poverty and deprivation. There are these pockets of opulence and um, advantage. And you started to kind of put those two things together. I think that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So, Raphael, now, uh, why this way? Why this form? I think the time is right for, for something like this. There was a huge impact on me. Um, so, you know, I'm a Toastmaster. I've had some, uh, for those of you who don't know. I was just going to say that. Cause, yeah. Because yeah. you can I mean, say you're a master right, you know, of exactly. toast and that would be weird. But, I, yeah. I make toasts on the regular. Um, With a lot of butter. Every That's day. Uh, no, Toastmasters is, uh, it's a... Um, Nonprofit organization that helps people to hone their public speaking skills, right? Along with some other things. Um, so I'm a Toastmaster. I'm a member of Toastmasters, um, and I and all my Toastmasters friends would kill me for all the ums that I'm doing right now. But one of the things that occurred to me as I started to observe human communication was how much easier it is for people to get their stories out. Uh, the reason that I invoke this Toastmaster story is because there was a, a fellow Toastmaster, another member of the organization, who told a story about uh, his wife and the birth of their first child and how he nearly lost his family. And it was touching, and everybody responded well, and it was so different in style than what I was used to. You know, I, I was about information first, 
and let's just talk about the facts and that was it but i saw how people responded to story and i was like wow this this story part is apparently apparently very important to people it's a big deal yeah um which you know i'm a therapist stories are everything so i was dumbfounded by the notion but i you know since i understand how important story is to most people so as a non-fiction reader um exclusively right i I don't read any fiction uh i could skip story all the time but you know i have learned enough now that i understand how important it is anyway the the point with uh with what i saw him do was i started paying more attention to the the power of story and in particular there was the story of malala yousafzai um the woman who was in you know, in the Taliban's attempt to deny her education, also ended up shooting her, nearly costing her life. But the thing that happened for me with Malala was how we came to know her story. You know, if this had been 25 years ago, it probably would have been a blip on the news and most Americans would have forgotten about it. But I think the nature of the gatekeepers, like that nature has changed. And we have technologies at our disposal that allow us to push our stories to nearly every corner of the globe. And so Malala just didn't show up in the news. She also showed up in our Facebook feed. She showed up on YouTube. And we were able to hear her story not just once, not just a blip in the news kind of way, but um, we were bombarded with it for a good while. And I think the the combination of me understanding, wow, one, the impo- you know the importance and the power of stories, uh, but also how how much control we have now uh, at this moment in time about our ability to to kind of craft a narrative and share that narrative with other people. I, I think that's huge. I think that's hugely important. And I, really, my call for everyone is everyone needs to hear. Like we all have a story inside of us, and I think all of those are important. And for some people, it might be about my relationship with my dad. And for someone else, it might be how I survived cancer. But we all have this story. And there's someone somewhere in the world that needs to hear that. And so I think this, this, this platform, this venue is perfect for that. As a, as a psychotherapist, I'm, I mean, really, that's what I'm listening to. Every, every time I meet with somebody, I'm listening to their stories. And um, considering similar to what you said, um, I'm, I'm noting the, the point and time of, of where they start and I'm gathering their history. And once I gather history, I can, I can start to understand what they're doing based on their past. So it's this little microcosm of perhaps even what you were mentioning about the right. country, um, but it's done individually. And I think that this is how kind of it plays out stories play out they start somewhere um the momentum gathers from the beginning point of whatever the memory is or whatever the experience is they carry it through and all of their actions are based on kind of this core assumption that they started with um so i I get the storytelling part and i actually um i read a lot less nonfiction these days because i think you've influenced me that way but I really, really love a good novel, and I think probably I'm gonna eventually return to that. So, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's it's a it's a great way of how we engage our brain. I like the thing that you said about um, how that kind of psychotherapeutic process is a lot like we kind of how we deal with history. 
Uh, I never thought about it in those terms, but yeah, we're, I mean, I guess kind of what we need to do is psychotherapy for the country. Mm. And that's basically, um, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to be the psychotherapist for the country. Well, uh, maybe you, very scary. May, maybe will maybe this uh, maybe this this endeavor will end up being you know kind of psychotherapeutic for mm-hmm. for the country. Wouldn't that be nice? So we've talked about a few things here, um, and just wrapping up our very first show, thought I'd I'd end it with this question of you just describing a little bit about what you would see as the intention for this show. Yeah, to be clear, I really do want people to talk. When I think about the decline of civic discourse, um, I mean, so there's a decline of civic spaces and, and even a place to have civic discourse. But I think the echo chambers of social media don't help us at all. And I really, really do want to push people to talk to each other um, across the aisle. And some of that has to do with getting people out of their comfort zones. I mean, no one grows on the beach, right? No one goes to the beach and has a good time and come back a a renewed and transformed person. Nobody grows on the beach. No one grows on the beach. Okay. Um, And we're transformed in our places of discomfort. And so it's not my intention to, like, I I don't need people to get their hackles up, but I do want people to hold on uh, as we challenge some assumptions, as we challenge some ideas, uh, some ideas that we hold close some and look at some things that make us uncomfortable Mm -hmm. but i'm asking people to hold on as we get a little bit uncomfortable and be open to having you know some some core beliefs challenged uh, and then take that take that into the world take that into those conversations with those people in your life who you know get on your nerves right uh whether it's your parents or your co-workers whatever but instead of having the same kind of cyclical cir- circular argument that we normally have, this time um, we're going to listen in a, in a slightly different kind of way. We're going to listen in a more empathetic kind of way. And eventually we'll, we'll talk about moral, fo- moral foundations theory and we're going to lay out a framework so that you can understand those people who are on the other side of the aisle. So there's some, cre- some critical things uh, that we need to understand about how people who are left-leaning how they think, and some critical things about how people who are right-leaning, how they think. And I think over time, as we kind of look at moral foundations theory as a framework, I think this will help listeners to be able to better understand the people in their lives who are on the opposite side of the aisle. Um, And I think between those things and empathy, we can not only get people talking to each other, but we can also get them listening better and understanding each other better. Uh, and hopefully get the the country a little closer. So if I'm hearing you, would you say that this show then isn't going to necessarily be you talking about your own personal leanings on one side or the other? Or is it? Are you going to divulge some of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be me. I think it'll be you. I think uh, it'll be, you know, people who come in and have, you know, interesting but also uncomfortable ideas about some of the things that we that we hold close, that we hold dear, ideas that we hold, uh, you know, dear to our hearts. But the ultimate idea, I think, mm-hmm. is to be, you know, a, a, a seat of heterodoxy mm-hmm. uh, and heterodoxy for the people who don't want to go to the dictionary. So the, the seat of heterodoxy, and, and heterodox just means unorthodox. It means different than the received wisdom, different than the, the conventional wisdom. It is looking at the way that we have kind of inherited our ideas and our beliefs and saying, 
Uh, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, and sometimes conventional, you know, sometimes convention has it right. I'm not about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Sometimes convention actually has a really good reason for doing what it does. And sometimes it doesn't. And I, I think for me, the point of, of kind of having a heterodoxic approach is saying, well, what's really valuable uh, and what's going to serve us to get to the end goal of where we actually want to get to? I love that because I think one of the things that I've found that you've challenged me so much with is um, getting caught in, in a line of thinking that um, connects to a popular idea. Um, oftentimes I'll bring something to you and say, what do you think about this? And it will be kind of, as you described, the echo chambers, the people that have been calling it out in the same way over and over and over again. Um, and I without noting it, have adopted just that popular view. And oftentimes you just back up and start at the very beginning and say, uh, yeah, that we would, I would have to pull that apart, kind of what you were talking about before, at the very beginning of something that hasn't been considered yet. Um, and so I don't find often you going towards one way or the other way, which is why I think this has been so it's been such an interesting process to hear the way you think. Um, you're often pulling it all apart like a, a part of a machine and taking everything apart. And then you see all the ways the parts work and then you put it back together and give a description. Um, that's my view of it anyway. So yeah. I'm excited about that. Yeah, I'm excited about that too. I like the, the, the notion of you backing up and kind of taking a fresh look at it, which is really ultimately what we want, right? We want people to back up a little bit and take a fresh look at the thing that they have already thought and said, oh, maybe it's actually not this clear. So I was thinking about this image of what I was describing to you of how we, uh, how you, in the way that you think that it's, um, I was describing it as a piece of machinery that you take it apart, you investigate it and put it back together. Um, and I was thinking about this time in my own life with uh, my little, or my middle child, um, Ella, who is now 20. You remember when I had that Nokia phone? I think she was like in like fifth or sixth grade. I do, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so I had that Nokia phone and she really wanted it. It wasn't working um, efficiently, it was working. But she felt like if she took it apart and put it back together that somehow she could fix it and it would work properly. Um, and so she did. She uh, got little screwdrivers and she started taking them apart, took all the guts out, and then felt like if she were observing it, she could just put it back together. You remember what happened when she got it back together? Uh, it didn't work. Didn't work. <laughs> uh, in fact, it worked uh, less better than it did then before she took it apart and I um I thought it was great like it's a good experiment you know she's trying but she didn't do enough investigating she didn't take it apart and then try to see what was broken before she took it before she tried to put it back together she um kind of was going off of her own understanding of how things should work rather than how right. things were working and I think that is the lesson that I um I have uh, gleaned from you and the way that I've seen you take things apart. The true investigation is um, important so that we can put things back together um, in a way that makes sense. Mm. 
So, uh, yeah, I hope that we do a lot more investigating, uh, taking things apart and um, investigating them to put them back together. That's my hope for this show anyway. Um, and so now at the end, uh, if you like us, uh, keep listening. Um, share with your friends. We have a lot of things that we would like to talk about coming up in the um, weeks and months ahead. So hopefully you'll stay tuned and be interested in how we're going to take things apart and put them back together. Nice. For Heterodox Americana, I am Rafael Freeman. And I'm Angie Backus. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you.